Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Alan Adamson, co-founder and managing partner of Metaforce and author of the book Shift Ahead. I think the best introduction I can give for this conversation comes from one of the endorsers of the book on the back of the copy of the book from Beth Comstock, who's vice chair at GE. She says, relevance is about managing the tension between staying attuned to what your customers want, but also staying in tune with who you are as a company and where the world is going. Shift Ahead is an invaluable collection of ideas, tools, and case studies that will help you manage that tension and adapt to the emerging economy with both intelligence and speed. I hope you enjoy my interview with Alan Adamson. Well, Alan, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Alan. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's always when there's another Alan on the line. I feel like I, you know the old. It's gonna be very confusing for the listeners. It is, and and it's gonna be a little like Doctor, Doctor, Doctor. I don't know if you know that movie, but yeah, <laughs> you'll be the Alan A N, and I'll be the Alan E N. I'm sure that won't help. That's right. That's right. So before we get talking about your latest book, Shift Ahead, I'd really love to hear your path 
and where you got started and and where you are today. As I was reading about you, I, I found it fascinating. I think the listeners will too. Well, thank you. You know, I, I started um, thinking I was going to be a filmmaker and went to school for that, but uh, Hollywood didn't uh, come calling as quickly as I thought they would. So after business school, I uh, decided I would make short films, 30-second films called commercials. And I joined uh, Ogilvy & Mather, which was a great place to start a career. Not quite in the Mad Men days, but advertising in Ogilvy was uh, at the top of its game. And I had uh, several great years of training, learning from some really sharp people about how to tell a story about a brand or and how to position brands and lots of basic fundamentals. I then went over to Unilever to become a client for a while and worked in their soap division, you know, Caress, Bar Soap, and Dove. And, and it was a great learning experience about all the things that drive brands and classic package goods training. And subsequently, after uh, having a terrific experience, Unilever uh, went back to advertising, but not out of the category. I ended up working on Procter & Gamble on the advertising side for many years and going back and forth to Cincinnati. P&G is one of the stories in the book, and we can come back to that, but it was another great experience. And after uh, a fair amount of time in advertising again, working with P&G, I joined a uh, a firm called Landor and spent many, many years there. And Landor was uh, a firm that helped clients define its identity, its brand, and then bring it to life through a variety of tactics. And what was interesting about Landor was we worked across categories. I got a chance to do B2B. I got a chance to do big companies and small companies, big consumer goods and small consumer goods, services, nonprofits, organizations. And so it really broadened my horizon to touch everything from the traditional companies from Marriott and GE and Verizon to uh, nonprofits and uh, the Iran and Afghanistan veterans associations and everything in between. Well, what made the switch uh, or prompted the switch maybe from advertising to the brand consulting side? It seemed like an interesting opportunity when I met with the folks and I found myself most interested in dealing with difficult challenges. You know, no one ever came to, very few clients came to Landor and said, things are terrific everything's great. Just keep on doing what you're doing, doing what we're doing. Most times we had the, our sales are dropping, our market share is down. The competition is eating our lunch. <laughs> what do we do? Or we've been acquired or we're spinning this off. So clients came to Landor at a time of change. And I found that sorts of situation rather than saying, hey, we had a great year on Dove and we're going to continue doing what we did last year. The only thing for sure often is when a client came to Landor, continuing to do what they did last year was likely not going to be the answer. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. And so, you know, now you're writing, this is your second or third book. Is that right? Uh, actually, it's my fourth, fourth. book. Uh, okay. it, it, time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> exactly. And each time I've done it, I've, it, it it's all, often a, uh, it always is a sort of a sabbatical. I get a chance to uh, unplug or plug myself in differently and go back and learn about a whole bunch of uh, challenges and companies. If you're at a company and you call up a client and say, can I talk to you? They, of course, think you're going to be trying to pitch them your business. But if you call up and say, look, I think what's going on with your company or brand or organization is interesting. I'm writing a book. Can you tell me about it? Most are very gracious and very happy to discuss the challenges they're facing and share with you what they're doing and what they're learning and what they're struggling with. So it provides a venue to look at companies and brands that you don't get when you are uh, in the driver's seat of a, a corporation or an agency. Gotcha. And you've got a co-author on this book, Professor Joel Steckel and from NYU. So how did how did you guys meet? So I had been uh, teaching on and off at the business school at NYU for 
about 10 or 15 years, I did a class in advertising for many years, and then I took a sabbatical, and I was doing a fair amount of guest lecturing where I would go in and teach a class or two or three. And I got a call from uh, Joel that he had heard that I had been uh, lecturing his colleague's class, and could I come in? And we did a class together, and it just really was a great class because every time I started a story, he'd finish it. And every time he started a, a point of a point uh, that he wanted to share with his students, I would interrupt him and uh, finish it. So the chemistry was really good, and then I did another class with him. And shortly after that, I talked about this uh, book idea I had. Uh, at that time, it was called Shift Focus, but my publisher wanted me to uh, partner with somebody. And I was actually interested in partnering with somebody on a book because writing a book, uh, as you may know, is, is uh, more work than, I, than most people think. And you know, it can be somewhat solitary. And so the notion of uh, doing the thinking and research with a partner was intriguing, and it turned out to be a terrific experience. It sounds like a good partnership. So shift ahead. Let's talk about the book. It takes on this tricky issue of maintaining relevance for companies and relevance really in the face of extraordinary change. I guess to start off, maybe, why is that so hard? I guess, you know, the first reason it's hard is what you just said, that, that in many categories, change is accelerating. If I had said to you five years ago, gee, you know, Alan, I have a great business idea. You know, let's, uh, let's get people to stay in other people's homes and ride in strangers' cars. And I just need a little seed money to start this business idea. I'm not sure you would have uh, pulled out your checkbook too quickly. <laughs> of course, you know, that's a, a silly example. But one of the first things Joel and I did was say, you know, is it our imagination or is the world spinning faster and changing uh, faster and faster? And certainly in certain categories like technology, there's no doubt about it. If you have a lead today, and the only thing for sure is in 30, 60, 90 days, there'll be five competitors that can do what you do and maybe do it better. But we had the uh, privilege of speaking with uh, Tom Friedman, and he talks a lot about change and the accelerating pace of change. And his thesis, if, if I'm sure you know, a lot of your listeners know this, is that three major titanic forces are coming together to accelerate change in a dramatic way. One, I just mentioned the technology, or as he calls it, Moore's Law, and how fast that your iPhone had more has more computing power than the entire moon program NASA had by a factor of uh, 10. Globalization and how he defines it is not us shipping cars here or buying something there, but the true interconnectivity and interdependence across uh, economies. And the third, Mother Nature. And he talks a lot about how those three things, and anytime you talk to people that study change, the concept of convergence is key. It's never one or two things that make a change happen. It's a convergence of several things that come together and just click it. And across categories, if you look at what makes significant change happen, it's usually that convergence idea. Right. So if that's what's going on in the outside world, what's going on inside these companies? I mean, I've been inside these companies, so I kind of know your head's down. You're not really paying attention sometimes, unfortunately. But how did you guys break that apart? Yeah. So when we set off to explore, so how are, how are organizations, big and small, in different segments, tackling this, the world is spinning faster challenge? We end up speaking to almost, well, actually more than 100 companies. And everyone knew they had to change. Everyone realized that change was important. Everyone talked about change. But what was surprising was how few companies of the ones we spoke to were succeeding at it. So we began to you know, find lots of commonalities across companies as to why they knew they had to do it, but they were unable to do it. So the theory was pretty easy. You talk to any 
business executive and they say, oh, we, we must, or she say, we, they say, we must maintain relevance. So the theory is easy, but the execution is hard. And probably the first thing we found across the board is a gravitational pull of what I call you know, Marty Crane's chair. If you remember from the old Fraser show, he sat in that old chair in Fraser's apartment and he had his ways. And the, the notion is familiar is comfortable. Yesterday is more comfortable than tomorrow. And, you know, the realization that if you do nothing, gravity will pull you into Marty Crane's chair, <laughs> that, you, that everyone in every organization starts off doing on Tuesday what they did on Monday. And so you need to go in with the headset that human nature is to resist change. Anytime we did research in marketing communications early on, we showed somebody, here's a new ad and here's the old ad. They always preferred the old ad. Here's a new package. Here's the old package. They always prefer, you know, the, the bias is yesterday is better than tomorrow for, for people. The other big gravitational pull is what I call, uh, you know, cruise control is that yesterday is better, you know, comfortability, familiarity. And once you get into a groove, you're on cruise control. And the way I talk to it with my students is sometimes, and we, and found it to be exists across companies. When you're driving a car, you know, and especially cars today, soon you won't really need to pay attention too much. The car will tell you when you're drifting out of lane. You know, if you're not paying attention, it will stop before you hit the car in front of you. And then in a couple more years, you know, your phone will be driving your car. But if you go back to the future and you remember some people had to learn how to drive on something called a manual transmission where you actually shift gears. And if you're driving a stick shift car like I did in my youth, you had to pay attention to the sound of your engine, what gear you're in, what road conditions, if you wanted to pass somebody at the downshift. It was a far more active thing. And more and more companies we found were in autopilot cruise control. They were just zipping down the highway, whistling, and had started to lose touch with their engine, their company, their customer, started to lose touch with what was going on around them, the road. And so cruise control and Marty Crane's chair were, the, by and large, the two most common reasons, even though everyone talked about change, that companies and organizations struggle to execute it. Well, there's there's a, a saying that I've had, and it's a complicated one, but your book is full of stories. And, and as I was reading them, I kept saying, wow, I think my, my quote might be true. So I'm always looking for industries that might be disruptive or vulnerable to disruption. And um, the, the saying is that I, I use all the time is opportunity to disrupt is inversely proportional to the size of the business, the number of decision makers, and the distance of those decision makers from the people that the business serves. Well, I was wondering if you know, if there's an example from the book that, that's your favorite. Also interested in, in what you think about that saying. So I think the saying is, is uh, dead on. We spoke to a cultural anthropologist who does a lot of research in Trends around the world. Paco Underhill. He's written several books on uh, shopping. His whole business is about just watching people in stores and how they behave and what they do at the aisle and what happens to them in lines. And, and he, he told us that if you look inside the company, the desk furthest away from the customer is often where the leadership sits. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a couple of things going on in a company that sort of talk to that. And one of the things I experienced early on in my career when I mentioned I was a Unilever, that companies often tend to start playing too much tennis and not enough golf. Let me tell you what I mean. I'm bad at both sports, worse at one than the other. But, you know, when I'm trying to pretend I play tennis, part of the thinking is that, gee, if I could only hit the ball to where the person isn't, I'll win the game. So in tennis, you're very focused on where your opponent is and what they're doing and trying to outfox them. In golf, if I when I try to play that badly, 
you know, I'm not that worried about my partner. I'm more worried about where the ball is, how the wind is, what the course is. You know, I'm much more focused on the ball. And so at Unilever, I would find that we would get into conversations, not so much about what do you think people want when they're using a bar of soap, but did you see what Colgate did last week with Irish Spring? Can you believe P&G just launched this promotion for Ivory? So invariably, we began to get very fixated on what the other guy was doing, and especially... Unilever at that time was number three behind Colgate and P&G. If P&G did it, it must be right. Let's just follow that. And so we began to play so much tennis that we lost a sense of you know what the consumer was about. And that, that happened when I worked with Pepsi and their fixation on Coke. So lots of companies get very myopic very quickly by looking at their competition, thinking, A, they must know something we don't, or B, if they can just follow the competition, we're okay. And to your point, if you're doing that, you're going to get <laughs> the whole category is going to get wiped out. I, I spoke to, uh, we had a, several conversations with people at Hertz and I've done some work for Hertz in the past. And it came to light when I was taking my son to college a couple of years back and we arrived at the airport and I said, all right, Josh, let's go get a rental car. And he looked at me like I was from Mars. Why the heck are we getting a rental car? You know, I've double clicked. You know, there's a car downstairs. Why do we have to take the bus to the train to the plane? And I began to, we talked to that with Hertz. And if you look at how Hertz still does customer research, you rent a car. It was a car clean. <laughs> you know, did it have gas? Could you turn the key? And they are still very fixated on, you know, was a deal better than National? Or isn't our bus nicer than Avis? Don't we have more selections than uh, Alamo? And of course, the question they all should be asking is what happens when no one runs a car? anymore. So it's a golf and tennis thing that's, um, you know, again, the theory is easy, but it's hard to pull your head up and uh, not be so far from the customer that you don't see what's going on. Well, I like the golf and tennis analogy. I think that's really, really appropriate. Do you have a, a favorite story from the book you'd like to tell? Well, there's so many. That was the challenge. There were so many good stories. This is an old one, but it's relevant because yesterday there was news on this company that it was surprising. Maybe it was two days ago. So I had the privilege of uh, working with the Kodak company when Kodak equaled pictures. They were, you know, the brand to have I was in advertising at the time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, and if you had the Kodak account, you could do spectacular. You were doing ads like the iPhone is doing ads now. It was all about just showing the magic of pictures, because if you got people to take more pictures, you had 90% share of the market. And it was an incredibly profitable business. I was there just as the world was starting to tip. There were still, uh, it was still the way you took pictures. And I, but they started to, you know, 
experiment with digital film and they were trying to come up with hybrids. So I, I went back and I said, I right, pretty much, you know, my assumption on the Kodak was they, you know, they didn't see the train coming. And so I spoke to uh, some of my old clients as well as some people I never talked to, the strategic planning folks or research folks. And, and it turns out that Kodak knew to the year, to the month almost, five, eight years before their business tipped and disappeared, that they were going to get disrupted. They, you know, it was clear as day that digital, because they had a lot of digital knowledge, was going to make film disappear. So I said, oh my God, they, they knew it was coming. And so if you saw the train coming in a track, why didn't they get out of the way? And that became a more complicated answer. And that was twofold. One is there was a big board meeting that happened around this time. And the board had to make a decision on if they were going to be a digital photography company, photo company, or a chemical company. And there was strategic, it was, you know, play. They had lots of chemical assets. They had, they had Sterling Drug, which made Bayer Aspirin. They were a big chemical player. And they decided, no, they wanted to be a digital agency, a digital player. And they sold off the chemical business. It became Eastman Chemical, which is still today a $4 billion chemical company. Of course, they sold off the pharmaceutical business and many others. And they said, let's go after digital. But they didn't have, in hindsight, it turns out, the, the DNA of a digital company. They were a chemical company. They were a chemical sales company. And so when they tried to go after digital from a chemical sales base. It's like me saying I want to play basketball and being 5'8". It's, it's really not a good idea. So that was a, one surprise. And the other surprising thing about Kodak, or the other thing that was true about Kodak, which was true about many, many companies, probably the number one reason other than inertia, the companies failed to shift, is they were hung up in the golden handcuffs. And I spoke to folks who were there and they said, gee, anytime we wanted to invest in digital business, and there were lots of people who wanted to make the investment, the only thing for sure is that every $100 million we put into the film business, we were making 80% margins. <laughs> every $100 million we put into the digital business, we were making no money. And so given we had to feed Wall Street every quarter, the company all the profits were plowed back into the film business, and they couldn't make what the executive I spoke to, Andrew Salzman, told me was an asymmetrical bet. They couldn't take money from the usually profitable film business and invest it in an unprofitable, at that point, digital business. So the combination of both golden handcuffs, where they, they couldn't move the money to the future, and not having the right DNA made their shift impossible. And I just read in the news as I started the conversation that they have uh, launched a piece of uh, Bitcoin technology that helps people um, trademark, if you would, or protect copyright, which is a huge issue. And if they really can own protecting images through a piece of technology globally, so you can copyright an image and know where it's being used and get control of that. That is potentially a huge business uh, that has been plaguing creative developers for a long time. I think it's a, probably the question whether they have the right DNA to execute against that. Yeah. You know, now they're a tiny company. Uh, <laughs> uh, they don't have real money. But ironically, they have a brand name still that still says pictures <laughs> globally that is empty of a business. So the name still says pictures. And if they can pivot, if you would, or shift and get Kodak coin to represent or whatever, however they're going to brand it, the way that you, you manage your visual assets globally, potentially more interesting than uh, selling batteries. No, for sure. For sure. So I want to kind of double click a little bit on this notion of what business is your business in? It seems to be a very important way of framing for good or for bad what you decide to do next. And you talked about the pressures of Wall Street. And I think that complicates being able to 
decide what business you're in. Do you agree that that, that just initial framing of what is your business? Why are you in business? Is, is that where you think people should start? Yeah, I think that old, old Harvard Business School article on marketing myopia is still one of the issues that people are too literal in defining in our business. Like we had a great conversation with the CEO of Hasbro, and he came in to run Hasbro about six, seven years ago, Brian, the uh, CEO. And there was huge friction because he came in from a small unit they had in Hollywood that made a few, it was in the film licensing business area. And once he took over as CEO, it was ma'am, because they were in the toy business. What are you bringing in this guy from Hollywood? We're in the toy segment. <laughs> you know, what does this Hollywood person know about, you know, Monopoly or Risk or Sorry? They've never been to Toy Fair in his life. But he successfully rethought the category of this hybrid between toys and entertainment and content. And of all the toy companies out there today, you know, they just recently made a play for Mattel. They are the most, he did other things too. But one of the things that he was successful in doing was zooming out, if you would, and figuring out what category they needed to compete in. And then, of course, he brought in the DNA, to go back to my Kodak story, of Hollywood DNA and injected into the toy core in Providence to um, change the company and shift it. It's a great example. One of the things that I took away from this book, having read your background first and then read the book, I thought this was going to be about brands. And it is, but it's really a business book for business leaders. And really around making these shifts. So in their business overall, you know, what, I guess, what advice would you give to them just at the, at the top level? Obviously they need to read the book, but <laughs> what would you tell them that they need to be thinking about? Yeah, that was the intention. You know, I had written a few books on brand and I did not want to write another one because the world of brand is still relevant. But part of what makes brand and brand building so difficult is pace of change. And if you can't shift your business, it doesn't matter how you do your branding. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. I think there were two notions that came out from the few people that were able to shift ahead like Hansboro. One is this notion that I'll start with the, the close one. You, ha you have to respect your DNA. If, if you're trying to be an entertainment company, but you have toy DNA, don't bother, you know, so figure out who you're, you are and, and, do that. But if you don't have the right DNA, change it. The other was execute brilliantly. You know, lots of people try to change, but to do so requires brilliant execution. Another great conversation we have with Tom Friedman to go back to the beginning of our conversation is this notion that average is over and that to win today, you've got to be more better than average. And most companies fall into a lull of doing lots of things very well, averagely, but few things brilliantly. And so the firms that were able to succeed in shifting tended to really focus and tended to, through that focus, be able to execute. The other broad point was that leadership, not surprisingly, made a huge difference between successful firms that shifted to get their business ahead or back on track or kept it, keep it ahead, and those that ended up in the Kodak bucket or the Xerox bucket or the many other brands we looked at that are on the side of the road limping along. And leadership, because the decision as to what to do next is never obvious. What's around the corner, you can't figure out. Oftentimes, if companies have made the call to move ahead, it was a 51-49 call or it was 50-50. There was no data. And companies that are very risk averse where everything is needs to be 
tested and proven, they've struggled with that if they didn't have the leadership to say, no, this is our purpose. This is our vision. So that old, you need someone to say, we're going to turn the ship in this direction. Because if you ask the consumer, back to that famous Steve Jobs quote, you know, which way to go, sometimes they'll tell you, but often they won't. I like that. So if I think about, we drilled down, so we've been talking about the C-suite and I think probably more appropriately, the president and the CEO, when we think about leadership, but what is marketing's role if we bring it down a level? both as a function, but also the marketing leader, the CMO, if you will, in your mind, you've worked with a lot over the years. I had, we had a number of terrific conversations with uh, CMOs throughout the book from Gary Briggs at Facebook to uh, Linda Boldegi. And I, I think their role is to not lose touch of what's going on in the market, to be able to do what I call, you know, C and C's, to see something and seize it, either they take advantage of it or they get their leadership. So they need to be the most successful ones need to be champions of what's happening in the marketplace and help help the uh, organization evolve. And the most successful ones tend to, you know, move fast. If you go around the halls of Facebook, you definitely see the, the phrase, you know, done is better than perfect and move fast and break things. In fact, it was news on Facebook today about rechanging their homepage feed to make it less uh, content driven from publishers and marketers and more more baby pictures showing up. But part of a good CMO is the ability to help a company see what's going on and help them seize the opportunity by moving fast and being in touch with what's happening. Great advice. So let's shift gears a little bit. With each interview I do, I love to kind of get to know the person, you know, what makes them tick. And in particular, I love asking this question, which is what experience of your past do you think defines or makes up who you are today? The type of thing I love working on are what I call conceptual problem solving, where you look at a problem and you can't, you know, run the spreadsheet and find out the answer is blue, not red, where there's no easy answer. There's no obvious answer. And you have to change the paradigm by applying some creativity to it. And and the times that I've had the most, you know, and that's, I can sometimes on rare occasion do that. But part of my career is when I was surrounded by incredibly creative professionals, they're in the advertising business or in the client side or in the other companies I work with. When you meet somebody who can look at what is and says, hey, this is the way it's always been, but what about this? That's always been the most exciting part of business to me is when somebody can see around the corner, can see what's next, can see further down the road. And, you know, we spoke to a lot of futurists. I uh, spoke to Faith Popcorn and lots of futurists. And most of them can predict what may happen. You know, it's a little harder to predict when it may happen. So to answer your question, I think for me, the core thing that gets me up in the morning is a problem that doesn't have an easy answer or you just can't ask a consumer, what do you want in a coffee? And they say, better tasting coffee and you just go do it. Right. You talk about this notion of conceptual problem solving. When did you realize that that's what you love doing? I guess it was perhaps a Unilever where uh, of the many things a brand manager, if you're in brand management, you know, when you're in brand management, as you know, you have to worry about production and product formulation and changing sales forecasts and distribution and lots of functional things. But I still enjoyed the creative end uh, when I was a Unilever of working with the ad agency or the promotion agency or the media agency or the, there was no digital agency back then, and, or the PR agency, as we used to call it, because they had to take what was and make the possible possible. So I think it was at that point I realized that while I enjoyed many aspects of marketing, the piece of marketing that got me thinking about the brand running in the park in the morning 
or the company or the problem was when it was not a creativity or something. Some catalyst was required to solve the problem versus looking in the rearview mirror and just adding up the numbers. Gotcha. Are there brands or causes or companies you think people should be taking notice of today? That's a really tough question, <laughs> Alan. But I think today what's interesting is how many people can go, ultimately brands or companies that are successful solve a problem, whether it's I'm paying too much for razor blades and you know, I, I'll set up a direct-to-market shave business, <laughs> or I don't like my kids, my daughter using hair color, they have a lot of chemicals. So a mom makes a, uh, de develops and launches a company to sell natural hair color. Today, I think it's become democratized. You don't need to be a big company to compete. With a good idea, you can go right to consumers. You can tell your story powerfully now. You don't need to hire necessarily Ogilvy Mather and shoot a commercial for a million dollars in the Super Bowl. You know, if you have a fairly talented team and a unique idea, you can tell your story almost on an iPhone. That I think today what's dynamic is that you don't have to be big to succeed. You still need, though, a simple, relevant idea that solves somebody's problem. And if you can get to that idea and go at it quickly and creatively, you can... Uh, disrupt almost any business. Interesting. Well, I'm going to make you play futurist here, but I won't ask you when. What do you think the future of marketing is going to look like? I think it's going to bifurcate between the hard analytical and the fact that you can know more about anyone and what they're doing, where they're doing than ever before. So data continues to become more important and predictive analytics in that whole world, I think, will continue to grow. The other is the simple notion that we're going back to the future. I've said that phrase before, but it used to be you found out about goods and services in the way back time. You went to your backyard fence and asked your neighbor, you know, what do they recommend? And now I think word of mouth is the most powerful marketing tool, and it will remain so. People want to find out what to do, what's going on by looking around and seeing what their friends use. And the theory, everyone's talking about social media and how to do it. And for me, this theory of social media is incredibly easy. It's the execution that remains harder and harder as more and more content. And the theory is people only share extraordinary. So if you don't have something great to share, you can share it, but no one's going to pay attention to it. So the future of marketing is going to be to those who find something extraordinary in either the problem they're solving or the way they're solving it or how they're solving it, or who they are, and tell that story powerfully. So I think creativity will still dominate a portion of marketing and analytics, and the two of them have to live together. But I don't think it's all going to be an app and an algorithm that will tell you how to market your company or your nonprofit or your product by just double clicking. Nice. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. A pleasure. I've enjoyed our conversation very much. Thanks for inviting me. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at Atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K.com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with project management by Sarah Williams, audio production by Aaron Campbell, writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. 
Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. We love to hear from listeners at info at atomic, A-T-O-M-C-K dot com. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Marketing Today.